So how many of you enjoy watching the Olympics? Whether it's Summer Olympics, Winter Olympics? I'll admit I'm more of a Summer Olympic fan than Winter Olympics, but generally enjoy both. Now, one of the things, though, that I struggle with at the Olympics is I have this expectation every time they're hosted, there is going to be some judging controversy. Like, I've almost kind of gotten cynical about the Olympics in some sports because I, I'm always like, there's a fix. There's got to be a fix. There's got to be some controversy just around the corner. And so I was doing some research uh, and, and came across a couple examples of some of the biggest scandals in the Summer Olympics. So 1988, some of you weren't alive in 1988, but in 1988, one of the biggest scandals took place in the Summer Olympics in boxing. So Roy Jones Jr., if any of you are boxing fans, you'll recognize that name. Roy Jones Jr. was uh, fighting in the gold medal bout and obviously won the match. Like if you go on YouTube and and Google gold medal bout Roy Jones Jr. and you watch him fight, you're like, he totally took the guy down. I mean, it was just a complete one-sided fight and he lost in a split decision. And, 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 and it was one of these, like, su- such an obvious, like, the guy that he lost to had this look on his face like, there's no way I won this match. That there's something going on. So even the guy who technically won knew that there was something wrong. It was that obvious. And in 2002, it's a little more recent, during the, so the, the figure skating pairs competition, it came down to the Canadian team and the Russian team. And the Canadians clearly skated better. All the announcers on NBC were like, yes, they won. They were getting ready for it to be announced that the Canadians won the gold medal, and yet the Russians won. And this was so bad, so egregious, they actually changed the entire scoring system for how they score figure skating in the Olympics. So this was, this was one of those monumental moments where the judging went so badly that they had to actually change the rules of the game. And so we all recognize Human judgment can be flawed and mistaken, but we do not like blatant, deceptive, unjust judgment. And we all recognize that there's mistakes, but when we know that it is purposefully flawed, purposefully unjust, we get angry, we get frustrated, we get resentful, especially when it's turned towards us. And then we can get downright cynical when we believe that we can't trust the judgment of other people. Or we can't trust the judgment of those who are in power and whose unjust judgment can create havoc in society. And then when we feel powerless to change it, when we see it happening and then go, hey, there's nothing really we can do, we respond with a deep anger and a deep cynicism. And so the question put before us in Psalm 7 is, what do we do with unjust judgment? What do we do with the unjust judgment of others, whether it's directed towards us or whether it exists in society and is wrecking havoc in society? What do we do with the pain and the damage that it inflicts? What do we do when it seems like there's nothing that we can do to fix the problem? Because these are realities living in our world. We can't escape them no matter how hard we try. And so Psalm 7 confronts us with this question and gives us language to engage it. Psalm 7 gives us truth to shape our hope and to shape our hearts. You see, David was facing the pain of unjust judgment, and how does he respond? Well, we see him crying out. We see him crying out in two particular ways, and that's where I want to sort of hang our time this morning, is the first that David cries out that the wicked, the unjust, those who would inflict injustice, that they would be defeated. 
And the second, he cries out that the righteous would be established. And so let's spend a few moments looking at both of these two cries that David makes and see how they're intended to shape our hearts as we engage unjust unjust judgment and injustice in our world. So as with many Psalms, Psalm 7 starts with a cry to God. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Then in verse 6, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. So we don't entirely know what the situation David is facing. So the superscript that opens Psalm 7 says that David writes this psalm in response to something Cush the Benjamite says to him. We have no idea, because it's not recorded in Scripture. We have no idea who Cush is. We have no idea what he said to David, that he would respond in this way. But, but here's what we sort of guess might be the dynamic. So Cush being a Benjamite, meaning he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And who else was from the tribe of Benjamin? Saul, the king prior to David. And there were many who were loyal to Saul that did not like David. And so there was probably something caught up in that dynamic that caused Cush to speak out and accuse David of something, something that is unjust, something that is, that is so bad that it is tearing David's soul apart. It is cutting very, very deep. And then in verses three through five, David begins to express further pain. He says, oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. So there's two layers to what David's saying in verses three through five. One, he is saying, look, Lord, if I've done the things I'm accused of, then yes, let my enemies take me out. Let my glory be, become shame. I deserve that if I'm doing that. But what, what's underneath that, though, is he's saying, like, Lord, if I'm doing this, then yeah, I should be treated this way. But I'm not, and I'm being treated this way. And so the pain underneath David's uh, cry in verses 3 through 5 is saying, Lord, I'm being treated as if someone who has done evil to a friend and have plundered an enemy unjustly, I'm being treated as if that is true. And that hurts. And so whatever it is that David is facing, there is a, a, a sense where he feels like this is tearing me apart. This feels like a lion, lion ripping me up. It's intense, deep pain. And I wonder if you've ever experienced that. Have you ever had unjust accusations tear your soul apart? Have you ever had people lie about you or make assumptions about you or judge you or condemn you? Speak things to you that just ripped at your heart and you felt the pain. It felt like, man, my, to- my soul is being rent in two. Treated as if you were a terrible, disloyal, deceptive person. Now, here's what we need to be clear about. And these are not the words of a faithful friend. Like Cush's words are different than the words of the prophet Nathan who came to David when David had sinned And he said, hey, David, you're the man. You've done this sin. And David immediately recognized his sin and he repented and he turned from his sin. See, Nathan came as a friend trying to correct David. Cush is coming as an enemy trying to destroy David. And these are two very different things and we need to be clear about them. Because look, here's what's going to happen. One of two things we can be tempted towards. One, we can listen to these words of accusations that rip at our soul and start to believe them. 
start to think that they're actually true of us and that condemnation can take root in our soul and wreck us. Or we can swing around to the other side and start to say, hey, you can't condemn me. You, you, you can sort of throw up defense when someone legitimately comes to you and corrects you. Someone legitimately brings sin before you and say, oh no, you're just trying to tear me down. There is a big difference between conviction and condemnation. What David is experiencing here is condemnation, not conviction. And just as a side note, the difference is this. Conviction always leads you to the gospel. Conviction leads you to life. Conviction leads you to repentance. Conviction leads you to Jesus. Condemnation destroys. Condemnation brings despair. Condemnation means you want to run away and hide and fall into self-pity. That's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings conviction. This is condemnation. And so David cries out in the midst of condemnation, Lord, save me. I find refuge. I find protection in you. Deliver me. He calls on the Lord to meet the fury of his enemies with his own anger. God, with your righteous anger, your righteous power, meet the fury and anger of my enemies that come after me. Awake to me. How intimate do you have to be to God when you can say, hey, God, will you wake up for me? I mean, it's, it's imagery here meant to show how close David is to him. It doesn't mean that God's sleeping on the job. It means that David can actually stir God to action. That's how close the relationship is. And so he is crying out to the Lord, save me, work on my behalf, defend me. And, and this is telling because as we talked about several weeks ago, David was a warrior king. Like you did not mess with David. David choke fools out, so to speak. Like David had not only his own fighting ability, he had an army behind him. And so if you were going to bring accusation against the king, you better watch it. David was a dude you did not mess with. But here, what does David do when he responds? Does he retaliate? Does he take things into his own hands? Does he use his own strength and his own power? Does he command his, enemy, his, his army to take out Cush? No, he runs to the Lord. He runs to the Lord. Lord, you're my refuge. You're my defender. You're my protector. You are my shield. He cries out to God. And this is important. This is, this, is, this is important for us to recognize because it's not that as if we're never to confront those who make accusations. This is not to say that there isn't a time where we may need to confront people. But David's first move is going to the Lord. And this is vital because you know what this does? This protects him from sinful anger, from bitterness, from cynicism, from a heart of revenge and retaliation. It, it, this is going to protect David from making it about him. As we're going to see, David has a bigger perspective in mind than just what Cush and, and others are doing to him. And so look, when we face this kind of pain, when we face unjust judgment, when we face the, the sin that is inflicted on us by other people, there's a question that's always before us, what are we going to do with that? And what the Psalms invite us into over and over and over again is our first move is go to the Lord. Because then even when we do act in ways that we need to, our heart is being shaped in righteousness. Our heart is being shaped in patience and peace. Our heart is being shaped in dependence upon the Lord. And so David cries out to God, but then this cry of personal pain puts him in tune with the condition of the entire world around him. 
It's as if David has this moment where he encounters the, the unjust judgment being inflicted upon him and his eyes are lifted to, hey, this is how the world is. He's all of a sudden overwhelmed with just the sense that this world can be unjust, painful, and evil. Verses six through nine, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you over and return on high. The Lord judges the people. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And so as David is reflecting on the Lord as one who defends him, he begins to meditate on the fact that the Lord is a judge. And then there's this picture of the people. So all the peoples of the world being assembled together. And here is the Lord sitting on high, taking his place of authority and judging all the peoples in righteousness. So he has this great picture of the power and authority and sovereignty of God over all nations. And he cries out, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. God, end the evil. See, David realized this was more than just about him. It was bigger than just what Cush was doing. There's actually a bigger problem than just me being sinned against and me being offended. That there is evil in this world. There is injustice in this world. There is unjust judgment in this world wrecking havoc. It is a pervasive problem that infects all things. You see, the pain that you and I experience, that doesn't mean that this is illegitimate or we shouldn't care about it. But never forget, it's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's just even bigger than just us for City Church. There's something else going on that David finds himself caught up in and he's crying out, God, will you end the evil that infects our world? Will you do something about the injustice? Will you judge the evil that judges people based on race? Will you judge the evil that judges people based on class? Will you judge the evil that judges women just objects? Will you judge the evil that judges that, that I can just do whatever I want with my life and personal autonomy reigns and don't ever tell me anything? Will you judge the kind of evil that people think I can justify my oppression? that I can do whatever I want, use whoever I want to get whatever I want. David is taking taking in the full scope of the problem and he recognizes the only person who can do anything about it is God. The only person who can deal with this is the Lord. The, The only person who can sit in judgment over all the peoples is the Lord. And so a question for us, when you feel your pain, when you experience that unjust judgment and those accusations and that condemnation, does it ever cause you to lift your eyes above your own problems and see the bigger issues? Does it ever cause you just to maybe feel a little bit more in tune with the brokenness of the world? You see, this is what crying out to the Lord does. It lifts our gaze, it gives us a sensitivity to just how bad the problem is. It sees that we're caught up in something bigger and our hearts break over that. Our hearts get righteously anger over that. And so David crying out to the Lord shapes his heart in a bigger perspective. And it also recognizes that really what's at stake here is that God is being sinned against. Yes, you and I get sinned against and that is a problem. But the bigger problem is that there are those who sin against God, break his law. The sin that you experience, the sin that I experience is just an outflow of people sinning against God. 
sinning against his goodness, his truth, his beauty. They're, they're bucking his authority. And so at the end of the day, this comes down to the Lord. And that we sin against God. We also cry out to God because he is the only righteous judge. Like, look, what hope do we have that evil will be dealt with in this world? Like, look, even the best courts, even the best judges, even the best systems are shot through with sin, shot through with failure, shot through with our preferences and our pride. For all our discernment, for all our wisdom, we're flawed. Even the best of us, we make mistakes. What hope do we have for perfect justice in this world? And then we have purposeful miscarries of justice where people will abuse their power, abuse their privilege, abuse position, and they will either neglect or they will use that to benefit themselves. And so look, when we look at our world in this issue of justice and judgments, we come up lacking. It's not perfect. It's failed. It's flawed. And so I would ask you, what hope do you have that justice will prevail? If you want to point out, well, this example kind of helps and this example kind of helps, I'd say, well, look at the 500 examples that prove otherwise. Like we're always going to see a system flawed and broken. And so David calls out to the Lord because he knows the Lord is the only one who can exercise perfect judgment. The only one who is righteous in his judgment. He sees through all things and he sees the things as they truly are. We need righteous judgment. We need judgment that will bring justice and goodness and truth and will uphold those things perfectly. And so David cries out to the Lord, God, will you righteously judge? And then he affirms that this is who God is in verses 11 through 16. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He's prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. So here's a picture of God inflicting justice. God actively brings judgment, and sometimes God allows the sin of men to sort of curve in and self-destruct. But either way, this is a picture of God dealing with evil, dealing with injustice. And so here's the question for us. Do you find hope in that? Do, do you find hope in a God who is a righteous judge? Or does that concept trouble you? Is that concept hard? And look, I, I'm not going to pretend that, that that truth doesn't raise a lot of questions. And some of those questions, Scripture doesn't even really give us answers for. But it is held out clearly that God is a righteous judge, and this is meant to actually bring hope to God's people. It is meant to strike fear into God's enemies, but it is meant to bring hope to God's people. And so if we have an issue with this idea that God is a righteous judge that, who deals with evil, if we have issues with this imagery of God being a warrior king who readies his weapons for battle, I wonder why. Well, why is it that we would struggle so much with this imagery? 
The Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf makes this great point in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He says, only in the context of comfort and affluence can the rejection of God as a God of judgment thrive. It's only in contexts where we're removed from pain and from evil can we begin to entertain the idea that God is just a God of love and never judges, never inflicts judgment or retribution. You bring that theology to the war zone where people are being murdered and, and, and their, their lives are being destroyed and, and many atrocities. And you try to tell them, hey, guess what? God is just a God of love. No judgments. What, what hope for people? If you, if you bring that message to people who experience injustice and pain on a regular basis and you tell them, hey, there's no retribution for the wicked, what hope is there? That theology will die in context of pain and suffering. That, that theology will be laughed out of the room in context of pain and suffering. Because there's no hope. There's no hope that, that there will be actual justice and judgment for those who would inflict evil and suffering on other people. Scott Sauls puts it this way. If there is no ultimate accounting for evil, what do we say to the Jews about Hitler? What do we say to little girls who have been sold into the sex trade by greedy, oppressive scoundrels? What do we say to the boy who is abused by his father or the unassuming widow who is robbed? It's too simple to merely say that our God is a God of love and nothing else. If God decided to put his gavel down once and for all, don't we see this would create many more problems than it would solve? If a judging God did not exist, then we would be living in a world of our Darwinian chaos in which the strong eat the weak and only the powerful survive. David put his hope in a God who judges because he knows without God's righteous judgment, there is no hope. That evil will win the day. That the powerful will prey on the weak. That injustice will be the last word. But because David is confident that God is a God of righteousness and justice, he knows God will deal with evil. And look, the reason God is a God of judgment is because God hates sin. God hates evil and rebellion and wickedness and pride and oppression and anger and greed and lust and deceit. Because look, sin wrecks men. It oppresses women. It abuses children. It ruins marriages and families and relationships. It leads to racism and sexism and economic injustice and political oppression. It robs of joy and love and peace and goodness. It blinds people to God and separates them from him. God judging is not about him being some supernatural crank in the sky ready to nuke sinners. It is about his love of what is true and good and beautiful. It's because he is righteous and cares deeply about the way evil does damage. That's why he brings judgment. That's why he brings justice to those who are unjust. And so we face pain of unjust judgment. We faced the, the attempts at condemnation and the, and the evil that people want to inflict on us in this world, holding on to the fact that knowing that God will deal with it. God is not indifferent. David cries out. He gives us language to cry out to God in response to anchor our hope. And so here, here's something I want to put before you. For those of you that call on Christ, who have put your faith in Christ, 
Are you anchoring your hope knowing that God will deal with evil? Are you letting that bring a sense of peace and a sense of patience and a sense of hope to you? For those of you that wouldn't call on the name of Christ, for those of you that, that would say, I, I don't believe in God or I don't believe in Jesus, the, the key word there is if a man will not repent. Like if, we, if we do not turn from our sin, then we are under the judgment of God because we are perpetrators, all of us. We are, not, we are not only those who have been sinned against, we are sinners. We perpetuate the system over and over and over. And so these words are strong and heavy to you because God is not indifferent to your sin. For David, rather than giving over to cynicism and anger and bitterness and despair, he cries out to the Lord in hope. Oh, be sure he's crying out in pain, but he's crying out to the Lord in hope. And David's hope is not just that God will judge the wicked, but he's also going to establish the righteous. It's not that just God is going to deal with something. He's also going to build something. So when Mindy and I were first married in the apartment we moved into, there's a grocery store next to us, and it barely really qualified as a grocery store. You, you walk in, I mean, it had the grocery store name, but you walk in and the aisles were really, really close together and it was dark and, and, and we really hadn't experienced anything like that. So we would just go in there and buy stuff without even thinking about it. And we get home and we look at it and we're like, this is all expired. Like who puts expired ketchup on the shelves? Like it was just like you would go in there and everything was, was sort of a risk if you were going to buy something good or buy something that was spoiled. So look, if ever judgment needed to rain down on a grocery store, this was the one. And they eventually did. They tore the thing down. And then they built this brand new, great grocery store in its place. And so they tore down this wicked abomination of a grocery store. And they built something good in its place. This is what David is also crying out for. God, don't just deal with evil. Establish the righteous. Establish what is good. Let's look at verses 8 through 10 again. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. So David does something very interesting here. He says, God, judge me according to my righteousness, according to my integrity. Look, and for those of us that have spent time in church and have read the Bible, we're conditioned to go, wait, none is righteous. No, not one. How could David ever claim righteousness? God, judge me by my righteousness. Isn't that a recipe for disaster? Well, there's a couple layers here that we need, to, we need to recognize here. One, David is speaking of a particular circumstance here. I remember what he said in verses three through five. Lord, if I've done these things, then judge me according to that. But I know I have not. And so he's asking God, judge me based on these circumstances, the integrity of my heart. I know before you, God, I have not done these things. And so he has a confidence in the Lord. Get this. He has a confidence in the Lord that God sees him rightly, which means he doesn't have to listen to those trying to condemn him. There is hope here. There is power here for David. There's freedom here because he knows God is a righteous judge and God will see him rightly. And so he says, God, before you, I know I have integrity. So judge me according to that. 
But again, what David does is he takes his personal experience and pulls up into a greater reality. What he's putting his hope in here is that God will establish the righteous. The reason David can have confidence before the Lord and say, hey, judge me according to my integrity in this situation is because he knows God will establish the righteous overall. And so he puts his hope in the fact that God is going to establish those who are in the upright of heart. He's going to save those who are upright in heart. And so then the deeper question becomes, then who is righteous? How how do we understand that the righteous will be established, that the upright in heart God will save? Well, the word righteousness speaks both to right standing. So am I in good standing with somebody? But it also speaks to right living. Are my actions and my heart and my affections and my thoughts in line with what is true and what is good? Are they in line with the character of God and his righteousness? And so here's what we need to understand. For David, for Israel, just like for you and I, righteousness was found in relationship with the Lord. Like, like I, I want to correct maybe a misconception sometimes we can have about the Old Testament as if Israel was to earn their righteousness on their own. No. God was very clear. I'm saving you not because you're righteous, because I love you. And then I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to be the one to sanctify you. He uses those words, which is I'm going to be the one that purifies you, makes you godly, makes you holy, makes you righteous. So David recognized that righteousness was in relationship to the Lord, meaning believing his promises, trusting in who God was, and then submitting his life and following the commands of God. And then there was also this reality, hey, when I sin, there's sacrifice there. I, I go and make sacrifices because I know I'm a sinner. That's part of walking in integrity, acknowledging you're a sinner. And so for Israel, upright in heart were those who followed God and believed his word, who who lived their lives according to his commandments and were honest about their sin. And and when David talks about the uh, the righteous being established and God saving the upright, what he's crying out for is this hope that God is going to establish a kingdom that rids the world of evil, that, that gets rid of injustice, and that those who follow God, those who love God, those who were wanting to order their lives around what is truly righteous and good, they would be the ones to stand and to last. What David is crying out for is he's crying out for a recreated world. God, recreate this world in righteousness. And those who are righteous, who love you, who who are fit for that world, establish them, keep them, hold them. Don't let evil win out. Don't let unjust people win out. Let the righteous be established. And so David had this great hope and this sense of promise that God was going to do this. And these promises are fulfilled in Jesus. The great hope that you and I have is that Jesus has come and has accomplished and established what David longed for. That through Jesus, the righteous would be established, that evil would be dealt with. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus entered into our world And he entered into that sin and in that injustice and in that evil. And he allowed that that unjust judgment to strike him down. He he willfully allowed people to lie and accuse and condemn him. But 
underneath that, what was deeper, is that he was standing in your, you and I's place, taking the judgment that you and I deserve. He, he allowed God to turn his sword and those fiery arrows on him for you and for me. He took the punishment that you and I deserved. The one who was perfectly righteous, treated as if he were an unjust criminal. But here is what is so hopeful about this. God didn't leave Jesus in the grave. He he didn't let injustice have the final word over Jesus. No, he raised him from the dead, declaring, this is my son who is righteous. This is my son who is innocent. This is my son who is righteousness itself. And so Jesus is raised in power, defeating evil, defeating injustice. And for you and me, for those of us who are united to Christ, here is the good news for us. Scripture says we don't have a righteousness of our own. Well, we don't have to go out and earn righteousness and, and achieve a certain level so that, so that God will like us. No, we are given the righteousness of Christ. He earned it for us. We receive it as a gift of grace. And it is if just as Jesus performed perfectly, that is accounted to us. God sees us as if we have performed perfectly. We have the righteousness of Christ. That anchors us. That is a truer word than any condemnation spoken over you. That is a truer word than any unjust judgment spoken over you. That is truer than even your own sin. The righteousness of Christ given as a gift we receive by faith. That's our shield. That's our hope. And we are established in Christ. Just as Christ is established, the resurrected and reigning king, those who are in him are established. But it gets better. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to come back and the kingdom that he brought with him is going to be completely overtaking this world. And so that is a kingdom of righteousness and goodness and justice and peace. All evil, all injustice, all suffering done away with. And who's going to be standing on the last day? What we see in the book of Revelation, Jesus and his bride. Jesus and his bride that he has made spotless. Jesus and those that he has called to himself, that have trusted in him, that have followed him. This is our hope, church. If you are in Christ, know that the evil that you experience will be dealt with. And so here here is where we need to anchor ourselves in Psalm 7. Here is where we need to put our hope. No matter how dark it gets, righteousness will be established. No, No matter how much condemnation comes your way, righteousness will be established. No matter how painful and hard it gets, righteousness will be established. And if you are in Christ, that means you will be established forever. The final word spoken over you, the final word spoken over this world, it's justice, it's righteousness, it's goodness, it's beauty, it's truth, it's forgiveness, it's salvation, it's life, it's flourishing. That's what Christ accomplished. And so as we cry out, our hope is shaped in this. Like, look, Psalm 7 doesn't give us a lot of go and do things to fix what is broken in the world. Like, like, look, we're called to go and love people and preach the gospel and work for goodness in our world. But Psalm 7 says, hey, hit the brakes before you go and do all that. Root your hope in what is important. Root your hope in what is true. And so as we cry out to God in the midst of this pain, as we 
put our hope in the truth that God is both going to righteously deal with evil, but then also establish righteousness. Well, that empowers us, church. This is why David ends Psalm 7 with this praise. I will give praise to the Lord, the thanks due to his righteousness. Because his righteousness means the evil we dealt with. And his righteousness means that goodness and truth and beauty and true righteousness will reign. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the most high. This is how we respond to unjust suffering, unjust judgment, injustice, evil in our world. We go to the Lord first and foremost. We cry out for him to exercise his power and his righteousness and his goodness in our lives and in the world. And anchored in that hope, let us go into this world carrying the gospel, loving, serving, seeking that the kingdom would renew, all with this sense that in the end, God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And that gives us hope. Amen.